Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. For our feature today, we'll hear IER reporter Enrique Sands talk about a bill that forces utilities and universities to continue fossil fuel use. That's coming up later in the program. But first, your environmental headlines. WTIU News reports that lawmakers want to study a way to reduce costs for utility customers when coal plants retire early. While the rapid transition to renewable energy may save utility customers money in the long run, it can lead to higher energy bills in the short run. That's because customers are still paying off retired coal plants while also funding new energy sources. A state Senate bill would study how to reduce those costs through securitization. Much like refinancing a home, it allows customers to pay off coal plants over a longer period of time at a lower rate, lowering energy bills. Tim Phelps is with the Indiana Conservative Alliance for Energy, which supports the legislation. Quote, These securitization tools could help speed up the state's inevitable transition to cleaner, more renewable energy and save money along the way, end quote. Phelps said. Inside Indiana Business reports that Indianapolis Power and Light Company is planning to acquire a 195-megawatt solar project. The project, which is expected to be completed in 2023, will be located in Clinton County, and Chicago-based Invenergy will develop the project and manage construction. The company says that once operating, the solar facility will generate enough electricity to power more than 30,000 homes. The project is also expected to create 200 temporary construction jobs. Construction on the project is expected to begin in the fall. According to the Indiana Environmental Reporter, a bill backed by farmers and environmentalists establishing the state's first carbon market has passed its first hurdle towards becoming law. Senate Bill 373, authored by three Republicans, establishes a carbon market registration program that facilitates carbon market trading in the state and allows the President Benjamin Harrison Conservation Trust Fund to take part. Carbon markets work by allowing companies to offset the amount of greenhouse gases they emit by purchasing carbon credits worth a certain amount of carbon dioxide emissions. Farmers, ranchers, and foresters can generate carbon credits to trade using environmentally sustainable farming practices that will retain a verified amount of greenhouse gases. 
One concern is that while carbon credits may be accrued by farmers, will the state reduce the amount of logging in state's forests? Our state averages about 14 million board feet of timber sales each year, which represents a large carbon debit. Indiana has promised to plant one million trees in the next five years. This is not an ambitious plan. Ethiopia plans to plant 20 billion trees by 2024. One of the challenges for solar companies that want to invest in Indiana is that different counties charge different tax rates. A new bill would provide some guidelines. The issue is some counties have been charging solar farms very low property taxes and others very high taxes in an attempt to keep solar farms out of their communities. Representative Ed Soliday, Republican of Valparaiso, is the bill's author. The bill seeks greater uniformity and stability of taxes. Some counties have taxed solar farms at the same low rate as farmland, which means less revenue for Indiana's rural areas. Katrina Hall is a director of public policy for the Indiana Farm Bureau, which supports the bill. Hall said the bill provides transparency as far as what the values will be and consistency. Soliday said the bill will set two relative caps, one to make a property tax rate comparable to other industrial utility projects and two to take into account where it's located. Specifically, it would look at the median assessed value in that region of the state. The bill also has support from the Indiana Energy Association and the Association of Indiana Counties. Two new wind farms are now online and generating electricity for NIPSCO, the company announced on February 1st. The Indiana-based projects, Rosewater Wind in White County and Jordan Creek Wind in Benton and Warren Counties, are generating enough electricity to power 125,000 homes, according to NIPSCO. Quote, we are excited to welcome these wind assets to our generating portfolio, end quote. NIPSCO President Mike Hooper said in the company's announcement. He said the projects were the first to be completed in the company's Your Energy, Your Future plan, which sets the goal of being coal-free by 2028 through the addition of cleaner energy sources to its existing portfolio of natural gas and hydroelectric generation. NIPSCO says the transition will save customers $4 billion over the long term. Indigenous water protectors and environmental activists are launching a new campaign to stop the Canadian company Enbridge's Line 3 pipeline by pressuring Wall Street Bank CEOs, other executives, and board members to cease financing the project. 18 banks have a $2.16 billion loan to Enbridge that's due for renewal on March 31st. People have been fighting Line 3 for the last seven years, It's a massive tar sands pipeline that would destroy the sacred wild rice beds that the Anishinaabe people depend on for food, their culture, and their way of life. Further, the pipeline would contribute as much pollution to the climate crisis as 50 new coal-fired power plants or 38 million vehicles on the nation's roads. It would endanger 800 wetlands and 200 waterways. Despite ongoing legal challenges from the Red Lake Nation, the White Earth Band of Ojibwe, and Neil Locke Band of Ojibwe, Minnesota's own Department of Commerce, 
environmental organizations, and 13 youth interveners, construction of Line 3 continues. More than 140,000 people have signed a petition demanding that President Biden take executive action to stop Line 3. On February 2nd, Representative Elon Omar wrote to Biden demanding the same. Four days earlier, over 600 people took to the streets of St. Paul, Minnesota to demand an end to the pipeline. More than 80 people have been arrested for taking direct action to stop construction of Line 3. Water protectors recently locked themselves into a section of the pipe, blockaded the entrances to construction sites, and locked themselves to trucks being used to carry Line 3 pipeline materials. According to a new report by the U.S. House of Representatives Oversight Committee's Subcommittee on Economic and Consumer Policy, popular commercial baby foods contain the heavy metals arsenic, lead, cadmium, and mercury at levels above what the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, or FDA, considers safe for other products. Those poisons can interfere with neurological development in babies and have lifelong effects on cognition and behavior. Food safety experts and medical providers assert that no level of exposure to these metals is safe for infants. A 2019 report by Healthy Babies Bright Futures inspired the congressional study. The report stated that 95% of commercial baby foods contain heavy metals. The products tested and found to contain at least some of the metals were Nurture, which is Happy Baby, Hain, Earth's Best Organic, Beechnut, and Gerber. Three companies, Campbell, Walmart, and Sprout, declined to have their products tested. The FDA has set only one legal limit for metals in baby food. It requires that rice cereal not have more than 100 parts per billion of arsenic. However, metals tested in baby food often surpass the legal limits that the government has set for drinking water. Environmental groups are urging President Biden not to name former Agricultural Secretary Tom Vilsack to return as head of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They argue that his return would be a huge step backwards in the urgent project of supporting agricultural systems that mitigate the climate crisis while protecting public health and the environment. The groups maintain that Vilsack, while Secretary of Agriculture under former President Obama, supported chemically dependent industrial agriculture that resulted in the release of millions of pounds of pesticides into the environment, contaminating water and soil and harming human health and wildlife. The groups claim that Vilsack's record on the meat industry is lacking also. When he was agriculture secretary, the meat industry grew larger and more concentrated, further exacerbating the climate crisis. As the groups point out, Vilsack's appointment would also continue the revolving door relationship between chemical industry employees and government officials. Since leaving the Department of Agriculture, Vilsack has represented corporate dairies and other major food corporations. It's a conflict of interest to place executives of megacorporations in top government positions, especially when those megacorporations are also megapolluters. In a major victory for public health, District Court Judge Edward J. Chen has ordered 
EPA to require industry to report on asbestos imports and uses, the court held that the EPA's refusal to use its reporting authority to obtain necessary information on its asbestos risk evaluation under the Toxic Substances Control Act was arbitrary and capricious. The decision is a win for the independent nonprofit Asbestos Disease Awareness Organization dedicated to preventing asbestos exposure. Judge Chen sided with the organization in its legal challenge to EPA's 2018 denial of its petition to include asbestos in the EPA's chemical data reporting rule. The purpose of the petition was to ensure that the agency collected information on asbestos use and exposures necessary to evaluate and eliminate the serious risks of cancer and lung disease that asbestos poses to the U.S. public. Linda Reinstein, co-founder and president of the Asbestos Disease Awareness Organization, said, quote, EPA cannot do its job to protect the public unless it has basic information on how much asbestos is entering the United States and where it goes once it is here. This win is an unequivocal rejection of EPA's weak and inadequate protection of public health from a deadly substance that has taken hundreds of thousands of lives, end quote. With cities running out of space and rising sea levels predicted to put 800 million city dwellers at risk by 2050, more of us may have to get used to living on water. One nation adapting to this challenge is the Netherlands, where more than a quarter of the country already lies below sea level. In Amsterdam, residents and architects have created a visionary floating neighborhood called Schoonship, Dutch for clean ship. The project is small, Just more than 100 residents live in 46 homes on 30 arcs floating, but it's also designed to be self-sufficient with minimal impact on nature. Solar panels and heat pumps provide heating. Wastewater from toilets and showers is converted back into energy, and many residents also have a green roof where they can grow their own food. Floating communities aren't new. They've been around for generations in some parts of the world. Examples include the Euros people, who live on floating reed islands in Lake Titicaca, Peru, and the Bajau people of Southeast Asia, who live on small houseboats off the coasts of Indonesia, Malaysia, and the Philippines. In more recent times, interest in water living has grown as the world seeks solutions to the twin pressures of population density and climate change, causing sea levels to rise. A coalition of environmental and community groups is working to stop the new fortress liquefied natural gas pipeline and terminal in San Juan Bay, Puerto Rico. The project was built illegally without a permit from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. The coalition is telling the commission that the terminal needs to be shut down to protect the safety of surrounding communities. The new fortress terminal and pipeline threatens the health and safety of workers at the Puerto Rico Electric Energy Authority and nearby residential areas. Furthermore, they violate laws passed in Puerto Rico in 2019 that require more renewable energy and a consideration of the climate impacts of projects like the terminal and pipeline. 
New Fortress claims the terminal will help Puerto Rico's economy, but since no economic analysis was completed on the project, it's impossible to say for sure. At this point, the plant powered by New Fortress Gas is the most expensive base load unit in the Power Authority's entire system. New Fortress built and began operating the terminal and pipeline without applying for the proper state and federal permits. The coalition is pressuring the regulatory commission to force the New Fortress facility to comply with state and federal regulations or cease operations. And now for our feature, we'll hear IER reporter Enrique Sands talk about a bill that forces continuing fossil fuel use. bill that takes away local government's power to choose utilities generated without fossil fuels is making its way through the Indiana legislature. House Bill 1191, authored by Representative Jim Pressel and passed by the Indiana House of Representatives by a wide margin, seeks to preemptively remove the power of local governments to place restrictions on public utilities providing services to customers based on the source of the service and places multiple barriers for state universities to choose how they acquire their power sources. The bill would make it against the law for towns, cities, and counties to decide to reduce the climate change impacts of local public utilities by moving away from greenhouse gas-emitting sources like coal-fired generation or methane-laden natural gas. HB 1191 would also severely restrict the ability of state universities who supply much of the knowledge behind climate change efforts in Indiana from making energy source-based decisions on their own campus, like choosing carbon-friendly energy sources for buildings or their vehicle fleets. Russell said the bill was intended to prevent Indiana towns from imposing restrictions on natural gas like cities in California and other states have. I think it's very unfair to our constituents, any of them, to take away any source of energy that is currently, during a pandemic, this is the most cheapest and most affordable way to heat your house, right? So do we want local units of governments potentially, and I, I stress potentially, to take that away from them when things could be so bad for them right now? And that's why I think this is a great piece of legislation. Basically, it prohibits a local unit of government from prohibiting any particular type of energy source, uh, natural gas, thermal energy, LP gas. Uh, When it comes to heating, uh, fueling, electrifying, just says that all options are open. If those options are available today, a local unit should not have the ability to prohibit that. Natural gas is the second most widely used energy source in Indiana, behind only coal. Natural gas use in Indiana has been on the rise since 2009, jumping from about 507 billion cubic feet used in 2009 to 894 billion cubic feet in 2019. Most of the natural gas used in the state is not used to power homes, but businesses. Only about 16% of the natural gas used in the state was for residential use. Gas heating does save people money on monthly bills, but the cheaper heating and cooking cost Hoosiers in other ways, like increased health and pollution risks. Studies have found that gas appliances emit a wide range of toxic pollutants like carbon monoxide, nitrogen oxides, particulate matter, and formaldehyde. All have been linked to health effects like respiratory illnesses, cardiovascular disease, and premature death. A single hour of cooking when both the gas stove and oven are used raised the indoor nitrous oxide levels beyond federal air quality thresholds in homes, according to a UCLA study. Natural gas electricity generation emits much less carbon dioxide than coal-fired generation, leading to the energy source being branded as a bridge fuel. 
but natural gas still accounts for massive amounts of another greenhouse gas, methane. Methane is dozens of times more potent at trapping heat in the atmosphere than carbon dioxide. That's because natural gas is mostly methane with smaller amounts of hydrocarbon gas liquids like propane and butane. Methane makes up about 10% of total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. The gas is estimated to have 25 times the comparative impact on global warming than carbon dioxide. Coal-fired electricity generation emits about 40% more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere than natural gas generation, but the extraction and transportation of natural gas emits an untold amount of methane. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency estimates that between 1 and 4% of all natural gas emitted from underground wells escapes into the atmosphere. Methane also leaks as natural gas is transported and flared, adding to the methane that is burned to create the steam for electricity generation. Dozens of Indiana cities like Indianapolis, Bloomington, West Lafayette, and Goshen have created climate action plans to reduce their impact on climate change. None of the plans call for banning energy sources, but most seek to eventually transition away from fossil fuels. Pressel's bill would essentially outlaw those attempts. Basically, it prohibits a local unit of government from prohibiting any particular type of energy source. Uh, natural gas, thermal energy, LP gas, uh, when it comes to heating, uh, fueling, electrifying, just says that all options are open. If those options are available today, a local unit should not have the ability to prohibit that. The bill also takes away the ability of cities to require the installation of energy saving or energy producing components. Advocacy groups like the Hoosier Environmental Council and Citizens Action Coalition have spoken out against the bill for limiting what local government can decide to do for itself. Besides local governments, HB 1191 also limits how state-funded universities can plan their energy futures. Ball State University, Indiana University Bloomington, IUPUI, Purdue University, and other state-funded universities have produced plans to limit their greenhouse gas emissions. Some have the ultimate goal of achieving net zero emissions. Most of those efforts, like those of Indiana City climate plans, include phasing out fossil fuel emissions. Pressel's bill would allow the universities to pursue those goals but with strict stipulations. State-funded universities can prohibit or restrict energy sources if the change would result in monetary savings or is in, quote, furtherance of an established academic discipline, end quote. The bill also disallows the schools from retrofitting buildings with energy-saving or energy-producing components unless the cost of the project can be recouped within 10 years of the installation and bans them from establishing any preference or prohibition on motor vehicles based on the type of energy that powers the vehicle. Pressel said that that portion of the bill was intended to protect taxpayer dollars, but the move could serve to stifle the state's burgeoning climate change efforts. IU representatives told the Indiana Environmental Reporter that they were working with lawmakers to address the bill. Representative Matt Pierce, an opponent of the bill since its introduction, said the bill was searching for a problem to solve. The main point I want to make is the, uh, the bill is searching for a problem to solve. There has never been any suggestion that our state universities are making poor decisions when it comes to energy efficiency or sources of energy or that they haven't gotten a reasonable payback on their efforts. We're also once again uh, messing with the home rule of local units of government and again I'm not aware of a single unit of government in the state of Indiana that's attempted to regulate anybody's choice for the energy they use. And so I think that rather than create this additional bureaucracy, additional costs for uh, education, 
higher education institutions tie in the hands of local units of government. Uh, when there's no problem demonstrated here, it makes sense to just defeat this bill. Pressel admitted his bill was flawed, but still encouraged its passing. There are some things in 1191 that need to be addressed, and they will be addressed. You have my commitment on that uh, moving forward into the Senate bill, um, particularly with the higher education piece. And I've, I've tried to work with Purdue, IU. Um, I've had those conversations, and I, I appreciate the feedback because the last thing I want to do is put out a bad piece of energy policy. Russell's campaign received thousands of dollars in contributions from the energy industry in 2020, including natural gas energy suppliers like American Electric Power, Nysource Inc., Centerpoint Energy, Duke Energy, and the Indiana Electric Cooperative. The bill's co-authors, Representative Ethan Manning and Representative Ed Soliday, chair of the House Utilities, Energy, and Telecommunications Committee, were also strongly funded by fossil fuel concerns. The bill will now head to the Indiana Senate for consideration. For Eco Report, I'm Sarah Callanan. And I'm Patrick Callanan. Now for our, our events calendar. The deadline to participate in the 2021 Purdue Extension Master Gardener classes are due Friday, February 12th. That is tomorrow. The classes will be conducted online this spring. To get an application and more information, email bauer76 at purdue.edu. To honor Earth Day in 2021, the public has the opportunity to get compost bins and rain barrels through the Monroe County Solid Waste Management District and the City of Bloomington. There is a charge for the bins and barrels. Go to www.gogreendistrictorders.com to order by Monday, April 15th. Both practices help with stormwater management, increasing water quality, and reducing erosion. The next winter exploration hike at Monroe Lake will take place on Wednesday, February 17th from 9.30 to 11.30 a.m. Sign up at bit.ly slash weh hyphen feb17 hyphen 2021 by February 14th. Meet at the Fairfax State Recreation Area for this off-trail hike through lesser-known areas of Monroe Lake. There's no set path. Be prepared for rugged terrain and the lack of toilet facilities. Once you register, you will receive driving directions to the exact meeting location. Spring Mill State Park is offering a Nature Valentine's hike on Sunday, February 14th from 1 to 2 p.m., Join the naturalist on Trail 5 to look for natural objects in the shape of a heart. Bring your camera to take pictures. This is a one-mile, partially rugged hike. Monroe Lake is celebrating Valentine's Day with a Very Birdie Valentine's program on Sunday, February 14th. The event will take place in the Activity Center at the Payne Town State Recreation Area. Join the naturalists to make two different types of heart-shaped treats for wild birds, craft a bird-themed Valentine's Day card, and learn about common backyard birds. This is an indoor program, so masks must be worn by everyone. Sessions are between 45 to 60 minutes and take place at 9.30 and 10.45 a.m., 12.30, 1.45, 3, and 4.15 p.m. Registration is required at bit.ly slash birdvalentine2021.
And that wraps up our show for this week. The Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's feature was produced by IER reporter Enrique Sands. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled the events. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report.